0: Welcome to The Awakening Podcast. You can find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org. We're also on Bitshoot as Awakening Podcast. This week's episode is from The Speaking Podcast, but because it's concerning cancer, the lady's journey from having stage four, three times overcoming it, as well as her discussing different ways of making sure that you don't get ill, is very relevant because I personally know a lot of people that pass too soon because of cancer and I still know people that have cancer at the moment and I think we can all relate to that. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. We're also on BitChute on YouTube. I also have the Awakening Podcast, the Learn Polish Podcast and the Meditation Podcast and all can be found on RoyColin.com. Today, Another guest from America, please welcome Caroline Rose.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I always like the person to introduce themselves. Yes, like the audience, now. who's Caroline.
1: OK, well, I am uh, 43 and currently a mom to two kiddos and a wife. And well, I should also say a mom to two uh, four legged kiddos, my dogs who I just adore. I was born in Kentucky, raised in Texas, went to college in Nashville, Tennessee, and then moved on to New York City for a couple of years and then out to Los Angeles for 16. And when I was 27, I was in a med school program and was um, very suddenly out of the blue diagnosed with a stage four incurable cancer. So... um, went through three different battles with that two bone marrow transplants and have been in remission for 10 years. Wow,
0: well, that's, a, that's a hard thing to go through. I, I know because I've seen the stuff on the cancer that you've gone through, but before we go through that, because I know you're helping others and you're, you know, you're spreading the mission and, you know, giving hope to people. I'd like, you know, so obviously you're getting on stage now and you're speaking to a lot of people. but mm-hmm. I'd like to know your journey for speaking you know when you were younger were you the girl jumping on the table swinging or were you the one hiding in the corner
1: oh i think it was hiding under the table in the corner <laughs> i think i was <laughs> i think i was as far away from any stage that i could possibly find i um, you know i i don't know if i would label it as shy i just i think i had a lot of insecurity a lot of self doubt I didn't want people looking at me, you know, I I preferred to sort of blend in in whichever way I could. And, you know, I think I remember I felt safest with animals, I rode horses, and that was sort of where my personality would come out. And I think as I got older, you know, school forced me to, to, to present more and more. And then the blessing was I went to a college and chose a major, a really unique uh, major, which really focused on a lot of small groups and a ton of public speaking. And I think I just sort of found a little bit of a groove, you know, we started with a lot of the same faces and the small audiences, and we kind of supported each other. And I, I really felt, connected to them. And I realized it was okay to make a mistake that I didn't have to be perfect, you know, and then it really kind of grew from there. And I think by the time I left college, I really felt confident if, if I had to, I could talk in front of any group at any time. If I knew what I was talking about, that was my big thing was if I really understand the subject or whatever it might be, I can do this, but I knew that I had to really know what I was talking about because I didn't want to fake it at all. And I then went to New York City and I worked in public relations and then moved on to work with NBC Sports and really saw a lot of the behind the scenes media training. And I worked a lot with the on-air talent. And I remember what resonated so much with me, was, you know, it was the people that were really genuine that's what resonated with the audience or the customer or whatever was you know the goal was that was always that was always the key factor you know it was just really being that authentic genuine person the same person you were you know behind the camera in front of the camera at your house you know really that was what it was and so that has served me well, kind of learning that lesson through watching them as as, as I kind of started my public speaking journey. The, the way it kind of started was City of Hope in Los Angeles was one of the hospitals where I received a lot of my treatment and they kind of approached me after I'd been in remission for a couple of years and they wanted me to be a patient speaker. And I was excited about this because As long as I understood what City of Hope, what their goal was, you know, why do you want me on stage? And what do you want to accomplish by having me talk to everybody? As long as I knew what they wanted, I knew I knew my story and I knew I knew what I was talking about and I knew it was genuine and I knew it was going to be authentic. And as long as I could align those two, I had a confidence that I could do it. And we started very small. I think my first audience was about thirty people, and just it quickly grew from there up to I think I think we were doing three thousand people about a year later.
0: And I mean, it's nice with the school, like to do a course where you're speaking in front of people. Because I remember I used to be terrified in school, and you know? I oh, would, yeah. my voice would go. And in university, we had to do a project, and. I remember like I I, I done ninety percent of the project with the other people because I understood it and I got the worst marks for actually presentation because my I just I was just hopeless. So to do a course, I think it's brilliant because at that age, you know, if you're in a, a group because you would the support of other uh, you know college students, you know, it's not as bad. You realised hey, it's not it's okay to make a mistake, nobody's actually going to, you know, attack you. And
1: yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And I remember in this course one it was so horrible at the time but looking back one of the assignments was they gave us a topic that was intentionally embarrassing you know and we had to get up and I remember mine I had to research a certain ingredient in these potato chips and at first I thought well that's no problem and then I start researching and I realized that the main side effect is diarrhea. And so I had to get up and talk about this and then everyone else was in a similar position. And so we get up and I'm like, I cannot believe I'm getting, but then everyone, and it was just, we laughed so hard. And it was, it really was brilliant because we really overcame this. Okay. look, we got, we're getting up there, you know, scared to death, thinking this was going to be the worst day of our life. And, it was so much fun.
0: <laughs> right. And you, you said you went to PR then, because like PR, you know, you're kind of promoting for the client, so you would have been doing That's a lot right. of communications as well in that in field.
1: That's right. That's right. That that was a very hard um, transition for me. You know, I think I grew up in a little bit of this. The world is a wonderful place bubble. You know, and everyone is so nice and. You know, you moved to New York as a young, as a young, just out of college, you know, person, and and you go into this really cutthroat industry and, you know, they don't hold your hand and you really have to learn very, very, very fast what is going to uh, work and what doesn't work. And I remember I grew up in Texas, as I said, so y'all is just, it's just a word that I use all the time. And I remember I'd been there about a week and my boss pulled me aside and he said, Caroline, you cannot say y'all. And it just broke my heart because I thought, I don't know why not. (laughs) But it was just, it was a really sort of cut and dry, you either make it or you don't type of a world.
0: I don't think your boss realized that you could actually land clients by being yourself because some people would be attracted to when you go y'all come back
1: exactly exactly yeah well and it's funny because then when I went to NBC Sports I um I worked a little bit with the NBA and and golf and the Olympics and then all of a sudden they put me on the NASCAR account and I thought well, that's a departure. And I realized it was because of the y'all. They thought that I would be writing to the audience somehow a little bit better or something crazy. So, you know, I, uh, and I, and I, loved it. It was actually my favorite thing I worked on. So I think that was, that's very true.
0: Was that on TV or were you actually in the back? So it, what, what were we actually working for the NBC? Mm-hmm.
1: We were, so our actual offices were in New York and Rockefeller but then we went to a, a lot of the events, so I worked with production behind the scenes, um, and I did pretty much anything they needed me to do. You know, I worked with mainly the on-air talent, kind of organizing them really, their makeup, their travel, all of that, their dinners, and then you know pulling footage. Oh, we need this graphic, whatever it was. So we were watching sort of the cameras as it was happening, and. It was a fast it was fascinating, you know, because you're sort of literally looking at the person talking and then you look to your right and you see the screen what you see what you know everyone else is seeing. And it's really a cool thing to see because it really is different. You know it translates very differently live versus you know on on television.
0: And like the the people that you met in that industry, because you know the PR you said is cutthroat. I think that's the kind of industry as well that not everybody. Some people come across as if they're really nice and sweet, and yes. it ain't it ain't always the case.
1: No, it's not. PR PR was was a tough one. That was a really tough one. Yes, yes.
0: So I know your journey. You were twenty seven. That. Mm-hmm. So it, it, were you married at that stage or were you still single when you I time? was
1: still single. We, my husband, my now husband, I'd been dating about five and a half years. And when I was diagnosed, he proposed a couple of months later. Um, so we got married, um, I guess about three months after I'd finished my first eight rounds of chemo kind of once I'd gone into my first remission.
0: And you said, was it in the bones that you had it the first time that you got? A-
1: it, yes, it was, Um, it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which to be quite honest, even though I was in med school, I'd never, I didn't understand what that was, you know, it, and what I quickly learned is it's very similar to leukemia in that it's a blood cancer. So the cancer is literally in your blood, but the, you know, we have lymph nodes and it was in all of my lymph nodes. It was in my stomach, my spleen. And the big thing that made it stage four was that it was in my bone marrow. So for the doctors, that was the biggest the biggest um, red flag and the biggest issue
0: so when you when you found out and like you said it was stage four so what did it tell you I mean obviously at, at such a young age that must have been such a shock and they were probably not giving you much hope when you were like at four what way were they what was the talk that they were doing to you because That's sometimes right. I, like I see that the psychology and it's Obviously, yes. fantastic that you're, you know, you know, clear for years, which is good. It's, it's a happy ending, which is the most important. That's thing. right. <laughs> yes,
1: I'm here. Yes.
0: But I'd like to get back into your mindset at that stage, because I mean, one, you didn't even know what it was. And then when you found out where, where were you psychologically? And what were mm-hmm. you being told by them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, What I realized is ultimately it's sort of become one of my big messages is when I was first diagnosed, I was actually at the time, a big marathon runner and had started doing triathlons and was actually training to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. So I was in the best shape of my life the day I was diagnosed. No doubt about it. I'd never had one symptom. So it was a shock. I mean, it could not have been a bigger shock. And once I was diagnosed, and once I'd gone through all the testing for the doctors to determine how widespread this was, what are we dealing with, you know? And it was the worst case scenario. It was highly aggressive, incurable, and it was everywhere. So I remember the doctors telling me very, very clearly, they said, Caroline, we can treat this, but we cannot cure this. So our best case scenario is getting you into remission, but it will come back and probably will come back pretty quickly, but we don't know how long it will be until it comes back. So for me at the time, I was very type A. I mean, I was a, you know, I was a med school marathon. Like I was, I was the type A plus personality. You know, I liked to control. I liked setting a goal and achieving it. So getting this news that there really was no cure and I couldn't just treat this and, you know, reach the goal of being cured and move on. It was hard for me on so many levels and it took quite a while for the impact to really sink in of what I was dealing with. But I remember that first night after meeting with the doctors and and starting to understand what this was, I remember my uncle came in and at the time he'd been very involved with MD Anderson cancer center in Houston, which is where I was. And I remember he came in and he said, Caroline, look, you your goal cannot be a cure because that's not possible right now. He said, I've just been in all these meetings and I've met with doctors and researchers and there is so much happening. There's so much research going on. There's so many drugs in the pipeline. You just got to buy time. You've got to switch your goal to just buying time because chances are, When you need this again, when, you know, when you go into remission and your cancer comes back and you need another treatment option, there's a good probability that there will be something new and that could be curative. You just don't know. None of us know for any, you know, disease, you just got to buy time. And I remember that resonated with me and it was sort of this thought of like, okay, just take baby steps, you know, do what you have to do to live another day and just buy time and just let's just keep going and keep the hope that there will be, you know, a bigger and better option, treatment option when you need it. And ultimately that's exactly what happened by the third recurrence. There was a new clinical trial of, um, that required another bone mirror transplant, but a completely different protocol, completely different medications, completely different everything. And it was incredibly difficult, but that's what ended up being my cure.
0: And like when when you were that age, and you know you found that it's all over you, did they like did something like traumatic happen in your life previously? Because mm-hmm. like I I've just listened to a podcast, because I I have a lot of different people and doctors and everything, and I've just today I heard a podcast where they were saying that something traumatic in your life can actually bring on like some people lost a child or something, and that the trauma of that. Actually caused the, the cancer because we, we all have cancer cells in us, but you know, mm. to make them active that, that did you know was there something that happened prior to that in your life?
1: That is the best question. So, what's interesting about this is had you asked me 15 years ago, I would have said, No, I was great. And I think one of the biggest gifts I've been given through this whole journey has been really being honest and being able to, to look at my life and understand the why, you know, and yes, thousand percent. Absolutely. It all goes back to childhood and I don't fault anyone. Everyone did the best they could. You know, I think my parents did the best they could. I think their parents did the best they could, that there was a lot of hurt there. There was a lot of hurt and pain and, I think I just shut down and never addressed any of it actually. And it manifested itself in, in this cancer. And I think the most life changing thing for me has been to understand that and to learn about it and to really dive into that. It's also been the hardest, maybe even harder than the treatment. Cause it's painful to go there, you know, and, and it's exhausting and it's, scary and it's all of this. And I think that it's interesting. And that when I look at my family members who were affected as I was, we all had something, you know, um, I had another family member who was in it with cancer. Another one has some other issues that have manifested and it all goes back to what we, we, you know, we can share what we share and what we went through. And you can't escape stuff like that. You can't escape a trauma without having a physical, um, you know, uh, I don't know what to say, issue or whatever it is, unless you really deal with it. And it's really, really scary to deal with it.
0: I think uh, it's like the memory of uh, cells is in us and poisons us. And I think most of us have, there's been something happened Majority of people in their lives and we tend to just kind of push it down, but it's there and like what what I've realized and I've seen it just through breathwork work. um, because I'm doing a course now on breathwork, but I've seen it at different events where people were doing breathwork and just through the breathwork they've got release and they actually remember things that had happened in their past yes. and, but they got released, you know, just for those that are listening. Cause I mean, some people, you know, might have, are just curious or just, you know, like I would suggest investigate breathwork because it's a way yeah. of actually finding out and not in a bad way, but do it under a, a right facilitator because there's people that really know what they're doing. They're there to support you. If you do kind of get, you know, release, let's say, or you have a trauma that you remember something that happened from the past that they're there to comfort you. And then you can kind of move on. But once you release it, it's not inside you kind of burning without you even knowing. Sometimes you don't even know it, but it's there. Right. So
1: That's, that's the thing is you don't really even know because that's how, that's how we survive is we suppress it all. You know, yeah. I loved that podcast episode you had with your friend talking about the breath work. I thought that was so powerful. I think I've tried. I went, I've tried hypnosis. I've tried, you know, living in LA during that time was perfect because there's so many different doctors and and crazy things to try, you know, to to really go there and access it. And you have to, in a way, relive it to really uh, let it go, you know. And and it is. I think different things work for different people. And I think I just kept trying and I don't know if I was ready to let it go all at once. I think it was just little bit by little bit, you know, I started kind of facing these hard truths and and releasing it a bit and it changes you, you know, and then you almost come to the other side and you think, well, who am I without this, this, um, this weight, you know, that, that has been holding me down and who am I without the cancer? Cause I've, that was, you know, that was my other half for 15 years, you know, it became your identity. It's, it's what you know. And who are you on this other side? And that's scary as well.
0: I think once you go through a trauma like that, you appreciate the small little things in life. Your life just becomes, you know, I think we, it might sound strange, but I think there's a, a kind of heaven and hell on earth and mm-hmm. it's what you look for. You see, you attract. And when you actually start, when you are to the wall, and when you kind of think this is, you know, this is as far as it gets, and then you come through it, then you just embrace everything and you start looking at a butterfly, everything. You just, you just, yeah. you appreciate the moment. You're living in the moment instead of in the thoughts, oh, when I do this, I'll have this house, I'll get this car. You, you get out of that. You just, you just, you're just yeah. totally present.
1: I think that is that that is yes you just said it perfectly and i think the the thing for me that forces me to stay in the moment is once i became a mom i was diagnosed for the third time when my son was 5 weeks and my daughter was 2 so the fear that came with that i'd never had that on another diagnosis before so it it sent me to a place that i i couldn't handle it you know i couldn't even think about it because it was so it would have, it would have, you know, it was, it was too much all the way around. It was too much. So now that I'm 10 years in remission, what I've realized is I still have this fear every, you know, anyone that's gone into a doctor's office or received a dreaded phone call or whatever it is where your life has changed in a second, you know, it, it, you, Always have this fear. It's almost like it's hard to trust life because we're so aware of how quickly it can change and how things can just be taken from us and it can be paralyzing. And for me, for many, many years, it was paralyzing. So, what I've learned to do, I have to stay in this moment because if I start thinking about the future or, you know, even trying to, it drives my poor husband crazy. You know, he'll say, Well, what do you want to do this weekend? well i don't know yet but i know today <laughs> it's hard for me to plan because i it it's so terrifying because in the back of my mind i always think but what if i'm not here what if my kid what if i'm not here to do that with the kids what if i'm not and i can go down this rabbit hole very quickly of of this so my challenge is i have to stay in the moment because this is where i'm okay i know i'm okay right now so i'm not i'm not afraid of this, I'm afraid of tomorrow, and it's very, very hard for me to put, you know, put a savings away in a retirement account because I don't know if I'm going to be here for retirement. You know, statistically speaking, after all that my body's been through, I probably won't. But I've overcome all the odds so far, so who's to say I wouldn't again? But I don't even want to think about that. So why would I put money away and be responsible and save? when I could do all that right now. Like I could take that money and go on this awesome family trip today and pull my kids out of school. Who needs school and who needs savings? Let's go live it up now. And that's my big struggle. It's, it's staying in the moment and keeping myself focused on this, but yet also navigating life, you know, being the responsible parent and doing the stuff that you know, most people have to do just to, to ensure a secure future.
0: When, when you were like 27, was it chemotherapy that they put you through or what, what, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: It was chemo. Um, The first uh, eight rounds were chemo and then an experimental, I don't even know what you would call it. Chemo-ish drug. And then they continued that for maintenance after I went into remission. And then the first time it came back. So my second round, we did a bone marrow transplant and then went into remission for three and a half years. When it came back the third time, we did a different type of chemo, which was very, very difficult. And then a second bone marrow transplant. And that's what I say almost did me in that transplant took me to that you know, when people say they had their rock bottom or they, they, they couldn't go on. I never had that in the first two, but I think by the third, I think my body was so much weaker physically and I was a mom. So I think the emotion of it, plus the physical intensity coming in so much harder on a body that was already so much weaker. It just was the perfect combination to, to get me to I mean, I I gave up, I I physically said, I'm done, I'm I'm done. Stop, don't hang that chemo bag, leave the room. I'm I'm done, I cannot.
0: And with the bone marrow transplant, for those that don't know what exactly do they do and how long does it take? I mean, it's obviously very painful.
1: It's, um, you know, the best way someone described it to me is every person has cancer cells a healthy person, their immune system can recognize the cancer cell, red flag it and destroy it. So you don't quote unquote, have cancer. My immune system, because mine was a blood cancer, it couldn't recognize these cancer cells that go float around in our blood. So it never red flagged them and killed them. So the cancer was allowed to grow. So the thought is, okay, well, if your immune system is not Functioning correctly, let's take your immune system away. Let's just kill it off and let's give you a healthy person's immune system so theirs can grow in your body and then red flag the cancer cells and kill them. So they basically give you insanely, insanely strong chemo. You go in the hospital, they give you the chemo for a certain number of days. You may or may not have a few rest days. And then the actual transplant day is pretty anticlimactic. I think I was expecting like a marching band parade. I don't know what I was expecting that they just bring in. Um, it's an IV bag of bright red marrow. It's um, uh, for lack of a better word, it's, it's bone marrow from um, your donor. And it's not the marrow itself. It's the components that make up the marrow and they hang it and it just infuses in through an IV. And then you and then you wait because that the, the danger is if I, during that time had been exposed to a germ, I had nothing to fight it. So it would potentially very potentially be fatal. So it has to be so sterile, you know, everything around you and they do blood work every morning and it takes about 10 days, two weeks, and it's just 0.0, 0.0. But after about 10 days, two weeks, hopefully it's called engraftment that your marrow's cells have gone into your bone marrow and started making red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, all the things that, that, um, you know, comprise an immune system. So then one day your, your blood counts will be 0.1. And that's the best day ever because you know, it worked because that's called, you know, the engraftment happened. So then slowly, but surely your new immune system starts to build. And after about three or four weeks, it's strong enough that they will let you Uh, go home to sleep at night and then come back in during the day for, I think it's a total of four to five months, depending on the person. So, and the, and the fear is another one of the big risks is called um, graft versus host disease where the new immune system builds, but it doesn't recognize your body. So you've just put this immune system in you that starts attacking your body. And that's, that's a very big fear. I was incredibly fortunate. My brother was a perfect match, which, oddly does not happen often um it's it's sadly more rare to have a relative match than not and but he matched perfectly so we had similar dna now we had different blood types but he was still a perfect marrow match so i now have his blood type and i didn't have the graph versus host because of you know we had a similar dna so we had a much higher chance that his body or his immune system would would recognize my body and not fight it and it didn't
0: uh, like for your brother getting the marrow does he have to go under an operation to extract it from the bone
1: yet yeah, so there are two different ways you can do it and he actually did uh diff- he so he did one way the first time and one way the second so one way is about four or five days before donation, he gives himself shots to really boost his his uh, all the blood comp- over to overproduce all these blood components: white blood cells, red blood cells, platelets, and they all pop out of his bones into his blood. So his bones really ached for a few days. Then he goes in, and they put an IV in one arm. The blood leaves, goes behind him into a big apheresis machine that spins his blood and all these little components pop out, the platelets, red blood cells, all that, and then it comes back into his body through an IV in the other arm, and they circulate his entire blood volume about six times, and that machine then collects, that's the marrow that is collected, and that is then the IV bag that is hung that goes into into my body. The other way was the second time and there really was no preparation at all. He went into the operating room and went under and they went into his hips and with, you know, literally kind of pulled the marrow out and they went through in a couple of different locations and that was what they brought up and did to me. So I'm not quite sure why you would have one over the other. I know when you're donating to children, that is when you really do more of the operating room with the extraction. Honestly, he, I've had that done many, many times. And I talked to my brother about it. It's oddly easier having it done that way, just because you go in one day, you go under, you have it done, you wake up, you're a little sore, but you're fine. I think the, the giving yourself the shots and having that constant bone pain is really, it's just a hard thing um, it's hard to sleep you know he was up walking all night it's just that, that intense aching so it just lasts longer but i'm a, I, I try to do as much as i can for be the match because i i met so many people who never found a donor and it broke my heart and made me feel guilty that i had one and they didn't and i always always encourage people to to get on the donor list because you literally literally would be directly responsible for saving a life and it's incredible so and i try to be honest that it's not an easy donation process but the reward i mean i just i can't imagine anything better
0: no like the fact that your brother it's been your brother because not everybody would do that even if they were the perfect thing you know it's a it's it's beautiful that he you know that he did that and i'd say obviously it's made the bond i mean so Mm -hmm. much
1: And with my kids, I mean, my kids are 11 and 13 right now, and they worship him. They just think he hung the moon, and he doesn't have children of his own because he considers my kids his kids. And you know, it's it is funny. I will say we are we're pretty different. My brother and I are very different, and my husband started noticing at first. He's like Caroline. You just said something that your brother would say, or you now, you know, he loves, you know, to be really cold. And I, I never liked to be cold and now I can't stand to be hot. You know, it really, it really is a very interesting, I mean, I, I can't deny that I've definitely taken on some of his traits, you know? (laughs) It's the wildest thing. I have all of his allergies. I never had allergies before, so it's to the point where I'll now call him, like, okay, so what do I have to look forward to? You know, now I've got, it. <laughs> and it's just the wildest, the wildest thing.
0: Fascinating.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And like, I, I like the fact that you know, you were your third time, but the fact that you got pregnant, because I know that a lot of people can't get pregnant after going through the chemotherapy. So that was a blessing in itself to have two. you know, Mm -hmm.
1: and, and they had told me that I would not be able to have children. That was one question that very first day, the day before we started my very first round of chemo. I remember we asked that. And I remember the doctors and I don't fault them for this. They said, look, we understand that you're concerned, but our job right now is to save your life. So we don't have time because I guess my cancer was growing so fast that we met with the doctors on a Monday and I started, I went inpatient and started chemo Tuesday morning. There was no time. I mean, it was within 12 hours and So it was kind of one of those things at the time where they're right, we have to do what we have to do right now. And we'll we'll try to figure this out later. And after my husband and I got married, the first thing we did was meet with a fertility doctor in Los Angeles who'd had some success working with young women who'd gone through a lot of chemo. And we froze embryos. And after my first bone marrow transplant, so my second round, we transferred, and that was my daughter. And by this point, I'd had so much chemo and a bone marrow transplant. My fertility doctor and my oncologist, pretty much anyone we'd asked said, a natural pregnancy just is not, it's not possible, which was okay, because we still had some embryos frozen, you know, and my son was a natural pregnancy. And he is as healthy as can be. And, you know, it, it, he's the second reported natural birth after the, what, I don't know how they classify the chemos. And they called me one day and said, do you mind if, can you release certain medical records of his? And can we write this up in a medical journal? And I said, of course you can, because it goes back to the. I was told it was not possible. I completely understand why I was. I'm not angry that they told me that. But yet here he is. I mean, he's here and this was not possible. So really that sort of goes to this. it, it Anything is possible. It's not a guarantee, but it's possible, right? Which all goes back to the hope, which is sort of this message of, it may not end the way we want it to. A lot of times it doesn't, but it could. Anything can happen. I mean, we learned that this past year, right? Did we ever think we'd be in a world that we just went through this? Anything can happen. And we just have to stay open to that.
0: And I think you said it at the start that like you were just taking every step, you know, one step at a time, okay, just That's to funny. be, just keep. Going through and like when you were, um like I, I think you said, your daughter was two and your son was six months or six
1: five weeks, five mm-hmm. weeks. Oh my,
0: that mm-hmm. must have been tough because then, like when you had to be kind of you know germ free and everything, you obviously weren't allowed to see them. That must have been right. heartbreaking in itself for both oh, yeah. of you, for all of you.
1: Thousand percent. Yeah, I remember the first time I was able to hold my son. It had been, I mean, I want to say almost three months. And he was, I think he was seven months at that time. And, you know, he didn't know me and he didn't want me. And he wanted my husband. He wanted my mom, you know, he wanted anyone but me. And I remember my daughter was two and a half at the time. And she, um, she knew me, but it was very, it was like hiding on dad's leg kind of, you know, because I'm bald and I have these tubes hanging out of my chest that, you know, they used to hook up and um, I'm, I'm pale, you know, I'm just, I look very sickly, but that's where I give my husband so much credit. And we were so fortunate to work with this amazing child psychologist, I think twice before all of this to help me and and my husband know how to prepare really my daughter, because my son was so young for that. And you know, we would get syringes and put finger paint in it and kind of let her put the, you know, push the paint out through the syringe. And, you know, we turned medical stuff into hopefully non-scary objects. And I took her with me when I shaved my head, you know, because of their advice and made a picture book off Shutterfly from previous years where I was bald, you know, telling her mommy's going to be bald, but that just means the medicine's working. And, to always say the word cancer, but to not dwell on that word, you know, and make sure she knew it was a really, really, really big germ bug. This wasn't a germ bug she would catch if she had a fever, you know, and she had massive issues with medical that she wouldn't she wouldn't take medicine. I mean, to the point where she'd throw up blood if if we tried to get it down her and we had her in therapy. We had my son in therapy. And he, right now with my son especially he has a lot of anxiety and of course you know it's, I can feel guilty and I do feel guilty but I also know that my kids are so empathetic you know and they are these old souls and even though my son doesn't remember you know the, the being in the trenches of it all he 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 knows enough and I think in some way it helps them to just almost have a bigger perspective of things because I I see them with their friends and and they just seem wise and happy, you know, being they're arguably happier than everyone else. They're just very content and happy kids and they want to be home. We want to just be home together. They're not trying to get out the door. Not yet. (laughs) They just they really just want to be here with uh, in our dogs and it makes them happy and I think somewhere deep down it's that because we're all okay you know because for a long time we weren't but now we are and we're sort of making up for lost time in that
0: beautiful I mean it's been a long journey a difficult journey but then you would kind of appreciate them when you see hey you're back together mommy's got her hair again and it's yeah. like you know because like even though they're young they they mightn't even remember but I think deep down I think the brain remembers everything you know just, I
1: agree I agree I agree and so it's funny because what I was saying when you asked that great question earlier that I'd really kind of started to dig back into childhood and and really understand a lot then when I'm diagnosed for the third time and my kids are little I'm like Oh No, I'm doing it to my kids. You know? okay. like, now they're going to have to go through all this. And so um, it's life. I mean, we all come, you know, what do they say? No one gets out of life alive. Like we're all, we've all got something that we're going to have to work through and it's going to be our challenge. And we all have a struggle, you know, fill in that blank and, and but I think that's what makes us human. And and when we talk about it, it's where people can find that real connection that, that is so powerful.
0: Like after that, because you, you were extremely healthy, you were saying, you know, when before you found out the first, like, have you been, I'm not sure about the doctors, but, but through yourself, have you been kind of really making sure with the food that you're eating, that you're building, you know, that you you know for the time because like food is basically the way to keep away all illnesses and you know, not to use right. mi- microwave ovens and stuff like that and just to right. and stay away from toxic water if you can have very healthy water it makes a huge difference mm-hmm. as well
1: you know when I remember after my first treatment stopped and they said go live your life I kind of flipped out a little bit because I thought well wait a minute we're not doing anything to keep the cancer away you know and that is my. That was when I initially really dove in to food um, chemicals around the house. That was that was the way I took control to do something to keep the cancer away, and it was fascinating because I had never ever 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 learned or knew or I didn't know any of that. You know, I I just never had learned it and. One of my theories is when I look back now, at the time I was diagnosed, as I've said, I was in med school and a big runner. So I was very stressed. And I remember I had these delivery meals at the time in black plastic, and I'd pop them in the microwave, the plastic in the microwave and heat it up and eat it. Well, now I know. <laughs> you know. And really, one of my theories was I think about all those chemicals that were being you know leached into the food. Through the plastic. So, my kids know we don't have a microwave. We don't have plastic around food. You know, I mean, I won't even buy a milk carton in plastic. You know, I make sure. And we have a very special water filter. We eat organic as much as we can. I have gone through phases where I've gone a little overboard with it all. And where I have landed now today is we have to live. You know, my kid, we don't eat fast food for the most part. I mean, I think we've been to McDonald's once in our life, and my kids got a upset stomach, maybe because I told them they were going to, and we had never been back. But, you know, we we eat fairly normally. I do my best uh behind the scenes to make sure there are no chemicals, you know, everything is as organic as I can have it be. But I also believe that if I restrict things from the kids very tightly that they're just gonna go outside of the house and just drink 10 Cokes you know and so I try to explain why not relating to my health just in general and um I think so far it's worked well I think we could always do better but it's been a very tricky balance for me you know it's this thing of, I've had people say, well, you should never, ever drink alcohol. You should never, ever eat sugar. You should never. And then the other part of me listens to that. And I think, yes, but I fought so hard for this life. I want to live it. You know, I want to have that glass of wine or in the summer, I want to have that margarita. Now I'm not going to have it with margarita mix. I'm going to have it with fresh lime juice and, you know, but I need a balance to not feel resentful, you know, or. It, it just balanced. I just need to feel a little bit balanced.
0: I think um, there has to be where you're enjoying something because some people, they go too extreme, cut out everything, cut out alcohol, cut out meat, cut out this, cut out that. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to live to 100 with no pleasures in my life, you know? So you, Right. Right. So so as you say, nice glass of wine and, you know, not using, you know, the Coca-Cola in with the, you know, the alcohol and stuff like that. And I think Mm -hmm. it's just a combination that you're constantly uh, looking at that. Like you mentioned the stuff at home. I don't think most people realize it. Like what what frustrates me, like especially now during this last year where they're supposed to be protecting us, the government's protecting us, all these toxins in every single product, they're allowed.
1: Mm Underarm deodorant
0: causes a lot of breast cancer and because it blocks the glands from sweating, which we're allowed to do. Shampoos that people are using, skin creams, the lipstick. There are so many toxic... And I hate that I have to research myself to know what is safe. I use uh, natural soap. I use uh, the toothpaste without fluoride. I shouldn't have to do that. That should Mm -hmm. be... The government should be protecting me, making sure that nobody can produce that. But unfortunately... everybody has to go in and do their own homework and everything, which is, is wrong. But at the same time, look after yourself, but I'm delighted to hear that because a lot of yeah. people, they don't even, they, they just, you know, something happens. Yeah, now. Yeah. And they, they, they just continue on. And like, you have to look, how can I make myself as strong as possible? Like even exactly. with the recent thing that went on, the first thing I was doing is okay, I'll get zinc, I'll get iodine, you know, yeah. echinacea, vitamin D, and just build your system that you're as strong as possible. And you're on about the plastics. I've like seen something as well recently. A lot of people, are, they have to wear the mask depending where you're living in the world. You know, sometimes yeah. it's mandatory. The masks are plastic and the little particles are going into your body. And yeah. they go the government's got your back. They're protecting you. You have to protect yourself and not be relying on somebody external force that's saying they've got your back. Yeah. Because the only person that's got your back is yourself. And look that's after right. for your close circle.
1: That's right. And it, and it's getting worse, you know. I mean, I I use this example often, but I have an 86-year-old grandmother who has never exercised a day in her life. She drinks Coca-Cola, eats fried chicken and loves white toast. I've never met a human who is so unhealthy. But she's she's not one health problem, you know. I mean, she's older and some people have asked me about her and and they're like, but doesn't that disprove your theory of all the stuff you're doing? And I said, actually, no, it makes it even a stronger case because, you know, when she grew up, they didn't have as many chemicals as we do. They didn't have radiation from cell phones and Internet and all our world is getting even more, you know, concentrated and saturated with all of this harmful stuff, you know. She didn't have that growing up and look at her, you know, she still is doing okay, even though she's, and I think that w- when we hope that we would be protected, we're not. And I have learned a lot about, you know, not to get off topic, but just the, the lobbyist and the the, the 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 power and the money behind all of the decisions that are made. They don't want us to know a lot of this, you know, because it would hurt them business wise. And it, it's really a hard, sad thing to learn. And, you know, it was hard for me when I asked my doctors some stuff, who I adore my doctors, I mean, they have saved my life. But I really had to learn very quickly, that they were trained to do what they do so well. But anything outside of that, you know, they weren't taught that in med school, you know, they weren't taught about Vitamins, maybe a little class here or there, but not really. Yeah. And so all of that is on us, and it's hard to learn it because there are a million theories. You know, I mean, I pity the person who walks into a bookstore and says, "I'm going to get a book on how to eat right." Oh my goodness, you're going to have a million different options. You know, I mean, well, you should be vegan. No, you should only eat meat. You should do this. You should, and they all might be right. You know, and that's where I've gone through with all of this and gone to the craziest doctors and tried to understand what to do and I think where I landed is the answer is different for all of us. I think we should all eliminate as much as we can from our homes you know I mean we had a dog growing up who died of um cancer in his in his foot and I've since learned that that's pretty common for dogs because when you clean your floors with, pine salt or whatever else you use, the dog's paws absorb that, right? And so you look at the incidence of cancer in dogs, bone cancer in the legs and the foot, it's because of that. It's this direct absorption. So it it really makes sense when you think about it. But I think other than doing the obvious, you have to land on what feels right to you. You know, I tried to be vegan, I tried to do paleo, I tried to do it all. I wanted to be vegan, but I was exhausted. I couldn't get out of bed, you know, so I know I have to eat. So what is it for you and trusting that that's what works and not always comparing yourself to other people who might be, quote unquote, doing it better? Because I think a little bit is better than nothing.
0: Totally agree. I think you listen to your body because I've, mm-hmm. I've tried as well. I tried to go off meat because, I mean, I've obviously seen, you know, the way, the animals are raised and if you mm-hmm. go organic it's totally different because I I mean I totally am not into the cruelty I think it's it's terrible the way that mm-hmm. it's done but mm-hmm. if I go off it I know that I'm weak and I'm yeah. everyone is different you listen to your body and like you mentioned about McDonald's I know about six months ago I was I had to travel to another city there was nothing else open mm-hmm. and I felt so bad for the whole next day and it's like yeah. I might go there once every two years only when I'm stuck on a motorway and there's nothing else mm-hmm. open but mm-hmm. I'm glad it happens because it means that yeah. I'm eating so healthy. My body kind of goes, screams, what are yes. you putting in there? So listen to your body, you know, listen with, to your
1: body.
0: same with the phone, you know, like, like, yeah. you know, like we've been triggered to be like, if you don't have a uh, fi and you've no phone, mm-hmm. it's you've, you, you kind of get withdrawal for the first day or so afterwards yeah. it's, you feel so free. It's like the yeah. best thing ever. So you need yeah. to start put, putting the phone away from you as well, because it yeah. is it is very detrimental to our health. Unfortunately, I know you know yeah. we all we all feel connected, but we're not really connected. We are. It's a kind we're of it's a, a falseness that we think we are.
1: Yeah, and and I I, we, I look at the kids when I pick my daughter up from she's in middle school, seventh grade, and you you drive in to pick these kids up, and they're all they're standing with their friends, and they're all down on their phones. Probably texting the friend that's standing right next to them, you know, and and it's this this lost art of communication. I mean, yes, they can still get together and talk, but no one calls anyone on the phone anymore. That apparently is, you know, so uncool. And it it's not it's this face to face conversation. They all just text it. Or my daughter doesn't do social media, but you all these other social media channels and. I I don't think adults are equipped to handle a lot of what comes with social media so I think of these kids and what they have to go through I don't I don't know how I really don't know how they get through it but it's I'm very thankful we didn't have it when we were growing up yeah. It's not a good thing. <laughs> no, it's not. Like, I
0: mean, I, like, yeah. I remember that, like all the games we used to be playing on the street. If there was a tennis, if Wimbledon was on, we'd be out playing with our tennis rackets. Yes, if it's the no, World no. Cup, we'd be out playing football yeah, so and good. we'd be playing chestnuts and marbles and everything. Uh-huh. And all I see you now, you know, that people don't do. So I do it. My, so my youngest son is seven. I just make sure I, you know, got him uh-huh. a guitar, do painting uh-huh. with him. Just yeah. make sure we're outside playing football and everything and just making, yes. sure don't don't give them the device that they're right.
1: Right. And it helps us too, because it helps us. It's, It's a lot of pressure because I know they're watching what we do. So I don't want to mess it up. You know, I always say parenting is the one job I really don't want to mess up and the pressure is so high and I know they're watching. So I try when they're around to really not be on my phone as much, but I know I probably could do a much better job. So it helps me too you know put my phone down and go outside with them or do whatever it is because it helps me really I'm forced to kind of disconnect more than I, I may have done otherwise
0: my son tells me put the phone away and I do <laughs> <laughs> you know he said dad I'm talking to you put your phone away so I get my phone I go into another room and I put the phone that there and they miracle. miracle. <laughs>
1: That is so funny. Well, there you go. <laughs> just
0: for you. Yeah, they know better. So just, just finally, because you know, know you're giving, hope. and I mean, just listening to your story is, know, it's inspirational as well. Because you know, you you've had a, a hard time, but now you're, you know, like you're you're looking extremely healthy, smiling, happy. You know, you you've been through the the trenches. But now you're helping others, which is good as well, because, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes not everybody like a word of encouragement. So, you know, you mentioned you're speaking in front of like sometimes up to 2000 people. So you've mm-hmm. probably realized the power of stories. So how mm-hmm. are you connecting? What have you learned from kind of when you started off with to, to kind yeah. of as you progressed to connect better and just make people, I suppose, as, as the organization, hope that you can give yeah. you that hope? I th-
1: I think what I... I remember the first time I I stood up to speak about, like, personally, you know, what I went through, I remember, I remember, I always knew I didn't want to focus on, on me, you know, I wanted to try to make it relatable to where it was my story, but I hoped people would listen and think, oh, gosh, you know, that resonated somehow, you know, and it would make them think of themselves or someone they knew. And I think I was nervous that people wouldn't care. I think that was like that self-doubt creeping in. And I think, as the response was was really positive, and it gave me a little more confidence each time, I remember early on and still today, you know, afterwards, I love talking to people in the audience that'll come up. And the consistent message is, you gave us hope. You gave me hope. You gave them hope. you gave. And all in different ways, you know, it was, they would share a little bit of their story with me. And most times it wasn't cancer. Most of the times it was something completely unrelated, divorce or financial issues or depression, but it was all struggle. Kind of what I was saying earlier, right? Like their fill in the blank was depression, you know, theirs was, and it was relatable because I think it sort of opened that, that door and that communication on sort of the hardships in life sometimes that that we all have. And I remember one time we were, I was in Georgia and I had just spoken and this man came up afterwards and sort of this older, like distinguished gentleman. And he came up and he was just crying and he pulled out his phone and he said, we found out a few days ago that my nephew is going to have to have a second bone marrow transplant. And we've had, we've had no hope. We've been just so incredibly upset. And he showed me his phone and he showed me the picture of his nephew on his phone. And he said, I'm getting ready to call this little boy and I'm getting ready to give him hope because I just listened to you and you gave me hope and you're getting all of us hope. And I'll never forget that. And that was a story that was much more of a a parallel to mine, but I remember thinking, you know, how many people were kind of under that umbrella of that family, you know, and if, if I could even help them sleep better that night, then that was worth it. You know, it's always worth it if it touched somebody and maybe they could pass that on a little bit more. And I think just the more open and honest I was, you know, the less quote unquote polish, you know, if I you know i think i started off having notes and very quickly i put those down you know because it it was about connecting with them and being very open and vulnerable about the messiness of all of it because i think it gave them permission to maybe do the same in a way and being approachable and relatable and very very honest and genuine that was for me what felt right what still feels right and what i think is the most well-received and appreciated.
0: Oh, beautiful, yeah, because like some people, you know, not all doctors are good for giving the hope and everything, but if there's a family member or a friend or something that can ring up and just, just a phone call or just meeting them and talking to them and just kind of
1: mm-hmm.
0: tell you that story that you, you kind of mm-hmm. go, I can, I can get through this. I can get through even, you know, mm-hmm. as you said, there, there's new developments constantly. I can just get through this.
1: Let's get through that, it.
0: That can be the difference between throwing in the towel and rolling up your sleeves and going, okay, let's take this on.
1: That's right. That's right. And sometimes I think the less parallel the story, the better. Because, you know, I never want, I always preface it. Anyone I talk to, I say, This is my story. This is not going to be your story. You need to make your own story. You know, I want you need to go do it exactly how you need to do this. You know, I'm just using this as an example, right? Like. It could be, you know, one of my friends has a a child with autism, you know, and she heard me speak and that really resonated with her, the buying time because she's desperate to help her son. And right now there's not a great medication treatment, whatever it might be, but that idea of buying time and doing the best you can do today, it allows you to dive a little deeper in that mindset because you have hope that it might not always be that way. And it might, you know, hope is not a guarantee. It's, it's vulnerable and scary, but it gives you something to hold on to that, that gives you a little more energy and power to do it today, to do what you need to do today.
0: No, beautiful. I think uh, mm-hmm. everybody can resonate with what you've just said. So it's been wonderful speaking with you, Carolyn. Thank so you. can you let people know how they can get in contact with you?
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, it's at, everything is at dear Riley Rose. Um, Riley was my dog who got me through all my treatments and ended up writing a book that they have titled dear Riley Rose. Um, it's kind of one big letter to Riley kind of told through the perspective of our story together. So, um, everything, uh, website and Instagram and Facebook are all dear Riley Rose.
0: Okay, perfect. And I'll put the yeah. links on, I'll put the links on the podcast description and also on the videos where it's going to be posted. So Thank you. Yeah, it's been, it's been awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that's all for the Speaking Podcast. You'll find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com or on BitChute or on YouTube. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, five star rating, share with your friends. Until next week. Take care.